I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. And this is Hashtag History. The podcast for both history nerds and history haters alike. Where we dive into history's greatest stories of controversy, conspiracy, and corruption. Welcome to Hashtag History, episode 12. I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. Wow, does it feel weird to have the roles reversed again? I'm so happy being the person that makes cute little quips and questions. (laughs) Well, I had so much fun last week having you deliver the whole story and everything. It was really, really awesome. Um, But this week, we are reverting back to me telling the story. Thank the Lord above, because that was stressful for me. (laughs) I will say, though, that there is still a common theme from last week. Although we will technically be in November by the time this episode is released, we just want to cling to that October Halloween season just a moment longer and tell you guys one more murder mystery tale. Really, any excuse to tell a murder mystery tale is, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll do it. We'll, we we'll use do any it. excuse, yes. <laughs> and the first week of November is an excuse. Yes, totally. <laughs> Today, we will be discussing one of America's very first murder trials in which a woman was tried for murdering her parents. Nowadays, we all, or just me, become obsessed with murder trials that we see on TV, in magazines, on Instagram. Those really infamous cases that are blown out of proportion by the media, such as the O.J. Simpson trial or Casey Anthony, or even most recently, the Brooke Schuyler Richardson case, in which she was just acquitted in mid-September 2019. And uh, can I say what? Yeah. But I'm not going to talk about that here. Okay. <laughs> but this case and trial that we are talking about today, it occurred in 1892 and 1893, respectively. And it marked one of the first trials in which the media oversaturated the case, leading to all of the speculation that we still have about the case today. In fact, there has been so much talk about this case that there is even a nursery rhyme associated with it that for hundreds of years was even sung along with when kids were jumping rope on the playground. She's just beyond creepy. Beyond. So here's the rhyme, you guys, and no, I am not going to sing it. Aww. <laughs> Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. And with that, I think we need a drink. So, <laughs> Leah, it's your turn for this cocktail. Oh segment. my gosh, we sure do. Um, 
right. Because I have a kind of sick sense of humor, I went on a search for cocktails that had like axe or hatchet in the name. Awful. I'm terrible. So <laughs> I came across one that was called the Weathered Axe Punch, and I thought it sounded delightful. So here we go. The recipe calls for one and a half ounces of bourbon, three-fourths ounces of lemon juice, a half an ounce of lemon liqueur, a half an ounce of kochi americano, or you can do vermouth as a substitute, um, a half ounce of ginger syrup, and then you can garnish with a mint sprig. But as usual, I ain't that fancy, so there's no garnish. Me neither. Yeah. So let's take a sip before we go on, because I am very curious. Me too. Okay. Cheers. Oh. um, Lovely. Yeah. No, it tastes um, almost like a better version of a um, Kentucky Mule, which is my favorite drink. I might like this even better than that. I very much enjoy this. You know what it is, Leah? Oh. We've become vermouth snobs. Oh my gosh. Right? Yeah, we really do like all things that have vermouth in it now. <laughs> what is Which, that? Like three months ago, I was like, vermouth what? Yeah, it's yeah. true. I love it. All right. So um, now because I found it so difficult once again to find a backstory to every cocktail we drink including this one, I thought a cool alternative would be to just do a historical boozy fact if there isn't a cool backstory to the one we're drinking. How does that sound? That sounds fantabulous. Okay. Well, then, fun fact. (laughs) (laughs) Beer was considered foodstuff in Russia all the way up until 2013. 2013? Yes, due to the fact that only beverages that were more than 10% alcohol by volume were considered alcohol. Alcoholic. Um, honestly, because I'm awful, my very first thought that came to mind was like, when can I schedule a trip to Russia? I mean, it's now, now it's no longer true, but it, it was like six years ago. You could. 2013 was not six years ago. Yes, it was. Don't say that. Three plus six is nine. I'm unwilling to admit that 2013 was that long ago. <laughs> oh, that's about the time we met, isn't it? Actually, we did meet in 2013. There you go. There's your happy rainbow to there look at. <laughs> but that's it. That's all I got for you. That's crazy. Yeah. I, that is crazy. Yeah, isn't it? And I might totally be making this up, but isn't it true that like Russia has a very high number of alcoholics and alcoholism in its isn't, culture? Like, so maybe that's why? Because yeah. alcohol well, is so of, easily accessible? Correct. A lot of Europe is like that. We've talked about that on this podcast before that way back when, I mean, alcohol was so much safer to drink than even water was because it wasn't sanitary. So. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Right. Interesting stuff. So this story that we're talking about today, it is a little more well-known these days since Christina Ritchie, you know, the little girl from Casper, she starred in a movie about it in 2014 and then in a show in 2015 about this case. Which Have was you... four years ago. Just saying. <laughs> 
I legitimately wasn't even messing around. Like I was like, 2013 was not six years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Crazy. But Leah, have you seen either the movie or the show? No, but it's been on my watch list for for five, five, four to five (laughs) years now. Um, I've been really wanting to watch it. I just never have gotten around to it. When the show first came out, I of course geeked out because I knew all about Lizzie Borden. I watched a couple of episodes and sadly I didn't really like it. Oh. I this is me personally. I stopped after maybe two or three episodes um because I completely understand Hollywood taking liberties with different events in history, especially ones like this in which there's so much speculation and so many alternate theories. But I'm also a square and somewhat of a stickler for historical accuracy. And I just didn't feel like this show did a very good job in that area. Oh, okay. Maybe I don't want to watch it. Well, and this isn't a movie or show review podcast. I am the person that would watch a documentary 10 times out of 10 rather than a TV drama. (laughs) So I'm not really the one to trust with these opinions. And I will not go into details about the show here. But just know that I can remember back in the day when I was the only cool kid, or I guess the only total creep, that knew the story of Lizzie Borden, and now I think more people know about it because of it being recently picked up by Hollywood producers. That's something actually quite interesting to talk about, is um, I feel like there's been a lot more, like, biopics or biopics however you want to say it i so agree that in in some ways they're they're not so good because a lot of the times they're not 100 percent historically accurate but i think that overall it actually is really cool because it gets people interested in history yes and what i love is that people finally recognizing like our history is so fascinating that you don't need to fabricate stories just pull from our past yeah 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 so Let's talk about this case. We're going to start with a picture of Ms. Lizzie Borden herself. Leah, I've uploaded a picture of Lizzie from the year 1890. So this was taken um, just a couple of years before the murders occurred. Okay. my I mean, she's a fairly attractive person. I always feel weird when I'm like giving people like a review about their picture. I feel sure. weird about it. But... First thought was um, creepy eyes. Yes. I think putting it in context, knowing that she potentially murdered her parents gives you like a certain kind of perception looking at the picture. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I could see her murdering people for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I feel the same way. Yeah. So Lizzie, she's 30 years old in this picture that we will post to Instagram later She was born on July 19th, 1860 in Fall River, Massachusetts. She grew up in a super Christian and super modest household, despite her father's wealth. Her father, Andrew Jackson Borden, you heard that right, Andrew Jackson Borden. Is that throwing you back to episodes seven and eight of last season much? Mm -hmm. Her father, Andrew Jackson Borden... (laughs) Yeah, like you just said it like 12 times in a row. <laughs> I know. Just making sure you guys caught it. It's Andrew Jackson Borden. Thank you. <laughs> he was a super successful property developer that ended up amassing what would be, in today's standards, an estate worth more than $8 million. Despite this, 
He established a super frugal lifestyle. Many of his family and friends lived in much nicer parts of town, while the Borden family stayed in a more conservative household located at 92 Second Street in Fall River, Massachusetts. There's actually a picture of the house that I've uploaded for you to check out, Leah. Okay. <laughs> oh, it's tiny. Okay. Um, I mean, the picture, not the house. It, it just, yes. um, it is a smallish looking house. Um, two stories, but definitely still very um, just middle class looking. Yeah. The other huge thing about this house that the Bordens lived in was that there was no indoor plumbing nor electricity, even though these were super common amenities that someone of Mr. Borden's stature would have had. Mm. It just goes to show just how cheap Mr. Borden was. That sounds like such a, like, even today, like, a dad thing to do is, like, they, instead of, like, hiring a plumber to come in, they, like, try to fix it themselves. Yes. (laughs) No, it's a a total dad thing. He's like, you don't need indoor plumbing. You don't need to crap in inside. You can go outside for that, Lizzie. <laughs> there was a lot of tension in the Borden home leading up to the murders. Probably because one. they had to go to the bathroom outside. <laughs> I would say that was a part of it. I'd be like, really, Dad, thanks. For one, Lizzie's mom died when she was pretty young, leaving her and her older sister, Emma, with their dad for three years before he remarried. Even though they were young at the time, Lizzie and Emma despised their stepmom, Abby, believing she had only married their father for his wealth. They oftentimes refused to eat dinner with the family and would... and would refer to Abby as Mrs. Borden in a super formal manner lacking any form of intimacy. On top of that, both Lizzie and Emma were becoming frustrated with their father, who began gifting real estate to his wife's family in the months before the murders. The sisters demanded their own piece of real estate. Their father sold them a rental property that he had lived in when they were kids for one dollar. This is the equivalent of a little under $30 today, and as a recent homeowner, Leah, I'm sure purchasing a home for $30 sounds pretty freaking fantastic right now. I'm crying right now. I need (laughs) you to just drop it. Okay. Slow tear rolling down the cheek. Yeah, so their dad sells them this house for a dollar. And they're complaining about that, right? Oh, just wait. Okay. They ended up selling it back to their dad shortly before the murders for $5,000, which is the equivalent of about $140,000 today. And he actually bought it? Yes, he did. What the actual F, right? Like, I just, if I was a parent, I'd be like, uh, screw you, I'm not buying this back. What are you talking about? In, In my opinion, it was just their way of trying to get back at their dad and get him for what he was worth because they were pissed off at him. That's so weird and petty. It's very weird and petty. But with all of this combined tension built up, it was so much that there ended up being a big family fight in July of 1892, which led Lizzie and Emma to leave the family home for an extended period of time in which they stayed in New Bedford. Only in a week before the murders did Lizzie return to town, but even then, she stayed in a boarding house in town for a handful of days before going back to her dad's house. 
So she goes back to her dad's house and within days, everyone in the house is disgustingly sick. Leah, I know this will super gross you out because we have had many a conversation about leaving food out too long. (laughs) And then some people still thinking it's okay to eat it. Uh Uh-huh. But many in the Borden family suspected the reason for how ill they were was because there had been mutton left on the stove that was eaten as leftovers for several days. Could you imagine just eating out of a pot that's been left on the stove for days? Like I would rather starve. Oh my god. Get and some I don't mac and cheese, that. people. I, I don't mean that in like a super selfish way. Like if there's, for those that don't know, mutton is sheep meat. So there's like meat left on the stove for several days. At least it wasn't chicken. And we've had that conversation before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but again, remember how we talked about how cheap Mr. Borden was. And there was speculation that perhaps that's why this mutton was eaten over the course of several days because Mr. Borden was so cheap that he made his family eat days-old meat. Like, come on. I mean, some people like crusty cheese, but it's not meat. <laughs> For everyone out there, that was a dig <laughs> at me. So, <laughs> thanks, Leah. Uh-huh. Let me just explain it a little bit. And you can tell me to cut this out if you want me to. But Rachel, I discovered on a trip to Tahoe recently, <laughs> I discovered that Rachel really likes to leave cheese out, not for days, <laughs> but for just a, maybe a couple hours so that it gets a little crusty. It adds texture. <laughs> it's not meat left on the stove. No, like it's not meat, later. but it is dairy. I think I'm okay with the world knowing yeah. I like my cheese to have texture. She, she likes crusty cheese, guys. That's all there <laughs> is to it. Oh my god. Anyway. <laughs> there is another popular theory about why the family suddenly came down with an illness. Any guesses here, Leah? Poisoning! Poisoning! There was a local drugstore owner that claims he saw Lizzie Borden attempt to purchase hydrogen cyanide just the day before the murders, but was unable to since she did not have a prescription. In fact, there is evidence that Abby Borden, the stepmom, did actually suspect poisoning. Mr. Borden was not a very well-liked man in town. He was actually a bit of a jerk. And the family had long wondered if and when townspeople may retaliate his behavior. Hmm. The day before the murders, John Morse, Lizzie's uncle, was invited to stay a couple nights at the Borden household in order to discuss business. Mm -hmm. What kind of business, you ask? Historians have determined that Mr. Borden and Morse were likely discussing property transfer business, which could... If we are to understand that Mr. Borden's property sales had indeed upset Lizzie and Emma, this meeting between Mr. Borden and Morse may have upset them more. So Morse stays the night of August 3rd, 1892, sleeping in the guest room. And that's important, guys. It's going to come up later. He was in the guest room. After breakfast the next morning, Morse and Mr. Borden talk for about an hour or so before Morse left the house at around 8.48 a.m. to attend to some other business, but had promised that he intended to return home for lunch. Mr. Borden also left shortly thereafter to go on his usual morning walk. 
So now we have finally made it to the actual day of the murders, August 4th, 1892. That's my birthday. It's Leah's birthday, guys. And I mean, not 1892, but <laughs> August 4th. Woo! August 4th. Congratulations. The day of the murders. Yay. <laughs> August 4th in 1892. Um, despite what many theories have stated, it was not the hottest day of the year. I will get into that more later on and why that's even important, but just keep in mind, not the hottest day of the year. Okay. But anyway, it's August 4th, 1892, which was still a pretty hot day in Massachusetts. Morse, Mr. Borden, Mrs. Borden, Lizzie, and the housemaid, Bridget Maggie Sullivan, they've all finished breakfast and they're going their separate ways. It's sometime after breakfast that Mrs. Borden goes to the guest room to straighten it up since Morse had just stayed the night before in it. All we know next from forensic science. Is that Mrs. Borden was facing her killer when she was struck on the side of her head by a hatchet, which then caused her to fall to the floor where she busted her nose and forehead. She was then struck several times on the back of the head by approximately 17 hits by the hatchet. This here is where stuff gets super confusing and conflicting and everyone starts telling a different story. According to Sullivan, the housemaid, it's around 10.30 a.m. when she says that Mr. Borton, whoa, I don't think I said Borton. I think I said something else. Hold said on. Borton. Yeah, see? <laughs> Let me take a drink. That'll make it better. <laughs> uh, good point. Okay. <laughs> According to Sullivan, the housemaid, it's around 10.30 a.m. when she says that Mr. Borden returned from his walk and was unable to get the front door open. He called for help, to which Sullivan responded. When she was unable to get the jammed door open, she starts swearing, to which she testifies she heard Lizzie laugh at from the top of the stairs. Can I just say that I'm by, I'm in my house alone right now and I'm actually getting creeped out. So I'm going to, give me two seconds, I'm going to go close my door. Close the door I, to the office. Go close the door. Okay. 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 I'm so ready. First of all, super creepy. So creepy. Secondly... This is super important because anyone on the second story of the house at that time would have known that Mrs. Borden was dead. There was no way you could miss her. Okay. This is like really creepy. Okay. Just continue. Just ignore me. I might make noises that are like freaking out. Okay. Lizzie, on the other hand, tells a completely different story. She states that she most certainly was not upstairs She says nothing about the jam door experience. Rather, when Mr. Borden returned from his walk and asked Lizzie where Mrs. Borden was, she tells him that Mrs. Borden went to go visit a sick friend. Lizzie also says later that she helped Mr. Borden remove his boots before he took a nap on the couch, although this could not have been true since pictures taken of Mr. Borden's dead body show him with his shoes on. Finally, Lizzie then testified that she suggested to the housemaid, Sullivan, to go run to the store, but Sullivan rejected the offer since she was still feeling awful since they were all sick for days. 
and she instead went to her bedroom to take a nap. It all sounds pretty suspicious, no? Uh, 100%, yes. Okay. By Sullivan's account, it's while she's upstairs resting that she hears Lizzie start screaming from downstairs. Maggie, come quick. Father's dead. Somebody came in and killed him. Sullivan comes racing down and sees that Mr. Borden was killed while laying on the couch for his nap with approximately 10 strikes from a hatchet, one of which completely split his eyeball in half. For anyone interested, there are pictures of both Mr. and Mrs. Borden's bodies. Leah, I've uploaded them for you, not to describe, but just to glance at. Okay, this is going to do really good for me being home alone right now. Let's see. Oh, they're too small. But, like, it's not it's not so creepy. You know what I mean? It's like... Yeah. They're small, they're grainy, they're black and white. Yeah. You don't see too much. Nope. That's fine. Yep. Okay. Got it. Got so, it. <laughs> at this point, I think anyone and everyone can agree things are looking a little suspicious. Mm-hmm. Lizzie doesn't do herself any favors by then giving police varying accounts of what actually happened. After circling around a couple of different stories, Lizzie settled on saying that she was in the barn that was on the property and had run into the house when she heard some kind of noise. She says a groan or something. Again, this is the theory she like sort of settled on. She had also told police a story that she was in the barn at the time of the murders, had not heard anything and only realized something was wrong when she actually got inside the house. The police were later criticized for their complete lack of thorough investigation the day of the murders. Pretty much, they felt bad for the Borden family, they knew they had been ill, and they chose to leave them alone to rest and heal the day and night of the murders. Even Morse, the uncle, returned to the house that night and slept in a separate guest room, while Lizzie and Emma also stayed the night in the house. Even more than that, a friend of Lizzie's and Emma's, Alice Russell, came and stayed the night in the house with them that evening. No questions asked if someone was ever murdered in my home. I will never sleep in that house ever again, much less the same night of the murders. (laughs) Remember Alice Russell, though, because she's going to become important really soon. It isn't until August 6th, so two days after the murders, that the police finally return to the house and actually conduct a true investigation. They found in the basement of the house a hatchet head with a broken handle. They confiscated this, believing it could very well be the murder weapon. It's at this time that Lizzie is also told by the police that she is a suspect in the murder of her parents. So, like I said, Alice Russell becomes important to the story because the following day after Lizzie is told she's a suspect, Alice was headed into the kitchen of the home when she sees Lizzie tearing a dress apart. Alice is like, hey, Lizzie, what you doing there, girl? (laughs) Lizzie tells her the dress has paint on it and that she intends to throw the dress on a fire later. And on August 8th, 
Alice stated that she did indeed witness Lizzie burning that exact dress in the kitchen stove. Yep, she did it. She did it. Okay. Okay, thank you. Okay, episode over, guys. That's it. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) But there's more. Okay. There was a hearing on August 8th, 1892 that officially sealed Lizzie's fate. The police and attorneys interrogated her here, and she provided conflicting account after conflicting account. The media was all over this, later publishing a three-page article about it in the Boston Globe. Lizzie had officially become the prime suspect, and the trial was set to start on June 5th, 1893. The prosecution obviously had some heavy evidence to support their theory of Lizzie's guilt, but the defense fought back hard. Neither side was ever able to prove whether the hatchet head had indeed been the murder weapon, and there were even some witnesses that testified of indeed observing Lizzie in the barn on the property at what would have been the same time as the murders. Hmm. Okay. That changes my mind a little bit then. Oh, I'm sorry. What did you just say that changes your mind with? I mean, I would that just casts a little bit of doubt, at least. Yeah. Not necessarily important, but I just have to throw this in here because it is so insane. During the autopsies of Mr. and Mrs. Borden, their heads were removed. Tell me why they brought these heads into the courtroom as evidence during the trial. That's really gross. To no one's surprise, Lizzie fainted upon seeing them, and guilty or not, I 100% get it, because I would have fainted too. Yeah, in fact, I actually feel like that shows she, like, more leans the other way. Like, okay, someone fainting from the sight of a severed head is probably less likely to have committed murder, in my mind. No, good point. Um, I think a lot of the media actually saw it the other way. Hmm. Like, she saw them and like, oh god, look at what I've done. Oh, okay. Yeah. On June 20th, 1893, so about two weeks after the trial began, the jury deliberated for about an hour and a half before determining that Lizzie Borden was not guilty of her parents' murders. Leah, there's a newspaper clipping that I have uploaded delivering this news to the public. Not guilty. Should I do it in a voice? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh- I'm not going to. Lizzie Andrew Borden acquitted of the awful charge of murdering her father and stepmother. So say 12 good men and true. Verdict in the celebrated case rendered promptly promptly this afternoon. Judge charge of short duration. District attorney Knowlton's address an awful arraignment of the prisoner. Why exactly Lizzie was acquitted is beyond me, but one thing to keep in mind is that much of her back-and-forth testimony was not admissible in court. Things like her attempting to purchase poison shortly before the murders was also not admissible because the judge determined that it was not relevant. (laughs) By the time Lizzie got to trial... She and her attorneys had settled on a consistent story that she had been in the barn at the times of the murders, and this is the story that the jurors heard. I also know that nowadays, and especially back then, 12 men sitting on a jury do not want to believe that a well-raised Christian girl had anything to do with the murder of her parents. There was also 
a lot, a lot of sexism at this time. Hmm. And men, at this time. <laughs> I know. Hey, I wasn't getting political. Okay. <laughs> Particularly at this time, the sexism was rampant. And men truthfully didn't believe that a woman could be capable of something like murder. So what happened to Lizzie following the trial? Well, Lizzie and Emma made out like bandits following their parents' deaths. Mr. Borden's fortune was to pass to their stepmom, Abby, should anything ever happen to him. But because they had both died, this fortune passed on to Lizzie and Emma. They used this fortune to purchase a huge home, one that Lizzie called Maplecroft, that had a full staff of maids and housekeepers. In fact, this really bothered townspeople because the Borden girls would often flaunt the wealth that they had acquired after the deaths of their parents. They stayed in town and Lizzie was ostracized by the community for the rest of her life, which is no surprise, really. Mm -hmm. Townspeople wanted nothing to do with her. The first church service she attended after her acquittal, not a single person sat near her. For years following the acquittal, children in the town would throw rocks and eggs at her house, and her grave has been vandalized over and over throughout the years. I mean, if she's if she's innocent, then that's actually really sad. Except that I don't think she is. Okay. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> Remember how many of her minutes ago it was when you said, okay, she did it? Yeah. Let's go back to that. Okay. <laughs> Speaking of Mabelcroft, though... Lizzie and Emma likely would have lived in this home together for the rest of their lives if Lizzie hadn't done something to piss Emma off. You gotta love sisters, right? Yeah. In 1905... I say that like I have any. I don't. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, yeah, I know all about it. (laughs) And I love sisters, but there are four of us, so I have a lot of experience with sisters. Got it. In 1905, Lizzie threw a party for an actress named Nace O'Neill. Emma did not approve of this party and moved her happy little ass out of the house. (laughs) The two sisters would never speak again. Oh, wow. Way to, like, throw a tantrum over something that's not that big of a deal. Well, why this party was such a big deal, it's still up for debate But here's where we get into a really major, really controversial theory about Lizzie and something that that Christina Ritchie show touches on a lot. There had been speculation for years that Lizzie may have been a lesbian. Mm. Some have used this to explain why she killed her parents. Perhaps they caught her in the act and were so upset with her that she thought her only means of escape was to kill them. This is also the same theory used to explain why Emma was so upset with Lizzie for throwing the party for that actress. There's speculation that perhaps Lizzie and actress Nace O'Neill were involved in a sexual relationship, and Emma disapproved so strongly that she moved out of the house and never spoke to her sister again. Hmm. I had actually never heard that. Um, Really? Yeah, so that's interesting. Yeah, And going into this next part here, like what evidence is there to support that Lizzie was 
a lesbian, there's actually zero. Oh. (laughs) Other than the fact that she never married, if you can consider that evidence. But no one ever reported seeing nor suspecting Lizzie of any kind of homosexual relationship. In fact, this theory only surfaced in maybe the last, like, 40-ish years with various books that have come out about this crime. Hmm. Now let's go back to my bringing up that August 4th, 1892 was not the hottest day of the year. Why is this even important? It has long been reported that August 4th, 19, woo, August 4th, 1892 was 100 degrees because, well, this story supported the prosecutor's theory. They stated that there was no way that Lizzie could have been in the barn at the time of the murders because the heat simply would not have allowed it. Later conspiracy theorists have suspected that perhaps Sullivan, the housemaid, had been responsible for the murders because she was pissed off that she had been expected to continue on with household chores even though she was still sick from that weird illness that had overcome the family. And because it was so bloody hot. Mm. But let the record show that it was only about 83 degrees on August 4th, 1892. And if you are from Sacramento, like Leah and I, 83 degrees is an absolutely perfect fall day. I was just going to literally, I was just going to say, oh, sounds like a, a November, like a dream November day. 83 degrees. Yes. Yes, because let the record reflect that it is when we are recording this, it's like mid to late October and we're in the 80s. So are we we really? Hold on. I'm checking right now. I don't believe you. Not right now. No, not right now. We're in like the 60s. Um, Actually, no, I guess it wasn't. But it was like 80 on Sunday. Yeah. And Saturday, I think, too. Yeah, it was hot this weekend for sure. Lizzie did come back up in the media in 1897 for shoplifting oh this filthy rich possible murderer gets caught shoplifting (laughs) that's all about that guys okay we're done with that (laughs) moving on on june 1st 1927 lizzie died from pneumonia at the age of 66 it will come as no surprise that her death was not publicized in the paper and very few people attended her funeral Even though Lizzie and Emma had not spoken in years, it is kind of eerie that Emma died only eight days after her sister from kidney disease. Oh. Yeah. The sisters, neither of whom had ever married, were buried side by side in Fall River, Massachusetts. Oftentimes when we cover different places and events on this podcast, I then instantly create like a mental bucket list of places I want to visit before I die that relate to our stories. This is not one of those cases because get ready for this. The home where Mr. and Mrs. Borden died, it has been converted into a bed and breakfast where only the brave of heart can visit and stay the night mm-hmm. to stay in the room where mrs borden was hacked to death will cost you only 300 dollars a night seriously <sighs> you guys <laughs> go check this bed and breakfast out at lizzie-borden.com it is so disturbing people like their dark um tourism they too really dark. into it mm-hmm. 
too dark. You can also stay at Maplecroft, the home that Lizzie purchased following her parents' death, but that was like a little less creepy to me, still creepy, still not on the bucket. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> to wrap this thing up, although it is pretty clear to me that Lizzie was responsible for the deaths of her parents. I think I should mention the few holes in that theory that even I can see. When police arrived at the scene, there was no blood spatter. They apparently arrived very shortly after the murders occurred and Lizzie had no blood on her. So there is the matter of how did she change out of her clothes so quickly, assuming she was the killer, and assuming the dress that she burned in the kitchen stove days later did indeed have blood on it. There is also a lot of speculation about John Morse, Lizzie's uncle. This random uncle, uncle, whoa, <laughs> take it It's like a drinking game. Every time you stutter, just know, take huh? another drink. Because <laughs> it helps. Yeah. <laughs> this random uncle that randomly appears the very night before the murders and is coincidentally out of the house away on business at the very moment that his family is being hacked to death that is a bit suspicious hmm. and finally it's worth mentioning that there was actually another axe murder in fall river massachusetts just days before lizzie's trial began but the man convicted of that murder was ruled out as being involved in the Borden homicide as it was proven that he was not in Fall River at that time. And then, Leah, I have one final thing that we have to discuss on this episode. For those that don't know, Leah, can you tell our audience how you and I met? Oh, yes. Okay. Um, we met at a dance studio where we still both dance to this day. Um, or, yeah. I mean, you more than me, really, let's be honest. Um, but, yeah, a dance studio. Yes. That is very relevant to this story because are you ready for something Insanely disturbing. I don't know, but sure. In 1948, the American Ballet Theater premiered at the Metropolitan Opera House a brand new ballet by the name of Fall River Legend, which retells the story of the Borden murders, except this time Lizzie is found guilty. Leah, I've uploaded two pictures for you to look at from that ballet. Okay. I am intrigued. Okay. <laughs> So the first one shows a ballerina on point and she's wearing a white dress and she has blood stains all over the front of it, which is so disturbing. <laughs> and the second one shows a ballet dancer in a beautiful green gown um, with a hatchet right in front of her. So that's a weird, um, really weird ballet that I don't know if I ever want to see. Yeah, I don't know why, but of all the things I learned while researching for this episode, that right there was the most disturbing piece to me. I mean, I get, like, doing documentaries about it. Like, people are intrigued by something that doesn't make sense to them. Totally get it. But going so far as to, like, choreograph a ballet yes. it, to, to this story is weird. That's just weird is weird and it's disturbing, but it shows that the Lizzie Borden story has forever fascinated us since we see it all over pop culture. Ballets, 
TV series, and even that nursery rhyme that definitely over-exaggerated things by saying she gave her parents 40 and 41 wax, but still. Yeah. Thank you so much to everyone for tuning into this episode of Hashtag History. Leah and I enjoyed pretending for a brief moment in time that we were hosting a true crime podcast between (laughs) last episode and this one. But I swear, we are headed right back into our normal, super controversial history topics next week. And let me tell you, next week's is a doozy. Nice. We will have a link to our website in the show notes so you can see all of the photos that Leah described for you. We will also be posting the pictures to our Instagram. The link to our website is also where you can see all of the sources we use to put together our episodes. If you enjoyed the episode, do us a favor and subscribe to Hashtag History on whatever podcast platform you use. Share it with a friend and give us a rate and review. We do ask for five-star reviews, not just to make Rachel and I feel good about ourselves, which it does. (laughs) It does. It does, guys. Yeah. But the more five-star reviews we get, the easier it is for other people who have never heard of our podcast before to find us. So please help us out with that. We really, really appreciate it. Oh, and be sure to check us out on Instagram, as always, at hashtag history underscore podcast. And I also have to give a little shout out to my good friend, Katie, who has been so supportive of this podcast since day one. She sent me a text message about a week or so ago that basically said, OMG, you guys have to do an episode about this. And then she sent me a screenshot of the book she was currently listening to about Lizzie Borden. I literally responded with a picture of my own. It was a picture of my laptop that was in my lap at that exact moment as I was doing research for this very episode. I'll share screenshots of our text message string later. It was so funny. And thank you, Katie, for being so awesome. Yeah, that's so cool. Thanks, Katie. Thanks, Katie. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.